afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from our state-of-the-art facility here in my garage in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the several hundred listening live right now or the, uh, the many thousands who will listen to this recording on iTunes. Here's a question that parents and teachers and social scientists have been wrestling with for decades and decades. Why do some children succeed and others don't? Why do some kids go on to become flourishing, productive adults and others just somehow slip through the crevices? We've got a lot of theories for why that happens. It's socioeconomic status. It's family structure. It's the quality of our schools. But whatever our diagnosis, our remedies tend to be the same. We need to focus on making kids smarter, increase their IQs. We need to get more rigorous with math and vocabulary and tests and anything we can do to boost their brain power. Today's guest begs to differ. He argues that we've oversold cognitive skills as a predictor of success and undersold something that's at once cutting edge and old-fashioned character. He says that what really matters are things like grit and curiosity and self-control and conscientiousness and optimism, and that's where we should focus. Paul Tuff is a contributor to the New York Times Magazine and This American Life. He's the author of a previous very rich and fascinating book, Whatever It Takes, about Jeffrey Canada's work on the Harlem Children's Zone. Uh, and now he's out with How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. It's, it's really a terrific book. Uh, it's already a big hit, and we're glad to have him here this afternoon. Paul Tuff, welcome to Office Hours. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. Where, uh, where are you right now? I am uh, just south of San Francisco. Just south of San Francisco, but you're based in New York, is that right? So you're out and about telling everybody about this book. And that's right, that's right. America, exactly. America's West Coast. Uh, so, Paul, let me explain to you and our, and our audience how Office Hours works. On each program, we open the phone lines for an hour, and our guests and I take your questions, um, questions about work and business and careers and life and education and anything you want. Um, if you have questions, we'll try to supply some answers. Uh, as we like to say, this program is car talk for the human engine. Now, those of you listening live right now, we've got a lot of people uh, still coming in here, which is really terrific. Um, if you want to ask a question, you're listening to this live, please pay attention here. Um, the way to ask a question is to press star two, star two on your phone. That will allow our crack team of producers to see you on the control panel. I'll say your name. Josephine in St. Louis, you're on the air, and you can ask away. Um, we also found that people like to ask questions via Twitter. So we're monitoring Twitter Two, we get a lot of questions via Twitter, curiously enough, and um, in lieu of a, of a hashtag, uh, just use my handle, which is at Daniel Pink, at Daniel Pink. So again, I say this every episode. I feel silly saying it again. If you're listening to this on iTunes, please do not hit start two on your phone. Nothing will happen. Now, let's, um, but before we go to the questions, we've got people raising their hands virtually, lining up in the queue to ask Paul some questions. I get to ask Paul some questions, and I'm psyched. I'm totally psyched about this because my list here at the very top, it says tough questions. So, um, Paul, uh, in your book, you, uh, you've never heard that before, I'm sure. <laughs> I get nothing but tough questions. It's, it's 
disrupt. There you go. There you go. Those of us, I mean, we have, you and I have something in common in that we both have adjectives as last names. And that's a burden <laughs> most people don't endure. But leaving that aside for now, um, let's talk about this. Now, at the core of this book is kind of I, what you describe as something of an obstacle to actually doing right by our kids. And it's something that you call the cognitive hypothesis. Uh, tell us what that is and what's wrong with it. The cognitive hypothesis is the name that I've given to this uh, conventional wisdom out there that says that IQ is the most important skill, or for some of us, I think we think it's the only skill that matters in our child's success. Uh, that, that what we really have to focus on is that narrow band of cognitive skills that gets measured on achievement tests. Um, so I think that's what's behind our obsession with test scores, you know, from preschool admission tests through standardized achievement tests through SATs and ACTs. Um, and the educators and scientists who I'm writing about in this book are saying there's this different set of skills that are uh, at least as predictive of children's success and arguably more predictive. And, and, those, and, and what I like about this book uh, very much, and the book is, uh, again, it's called How Children Succeed, uh, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. Uh, I really like the balance of, of reporting, that sort of the ground truth of what's going on out there, along with the very substantive background in, in the social science. But these social scientists, coupled with what some folks um, serving, in many cases, disadvantaged kids are discovering, is, is that these things that, that you call character are even more predictive of, of success. So, so give us a sense of what you mean by character. Um, it, it's a good question because I think, I think character is a touchy word to use because a lot of us yeah. think of it as something that is innate and fixed uh, for your whole life. You're either you know, a person with character or you're a person without character. But the educators and scientists I'm writing about are, are describing it very differently as a set of skills that are teachable, learnable, malleable, uh, that we can develop in ourselves, that uh, teachers and parents can help their children develop, uh, and that make us more effective. Um, so it includes some of the ones you mentioned before, like grit and optimism, curiosity, persistence, perseverance. Um, these are things that are harder to measure on tests than yeah. uh, strict cognitive skills. Um, but both uh, economists and um, psychologists are increasingly providing evidence that they matter a lot in our long-term success. Yeah, well, let me, let me just pick up on that here. We actually we already have a lot of questions coming in via Twitter. We have a lot of people lined up. So those of you, again, if you want to ask Paul a question live, it's star two on your phone. You get in line. We've got people already lined up here, but you don't get to ask a question until I get to ask them. And we have some questions coming in on, on Twitter. And actually, uh, Brad in Birmingham asked um, – something very much related, Paul, to what you just said, which is, is, is there a way uh, to administer a valid normed test for things like grit and curiosity? Uh, there is an instrument to measure grit that you write about, but tell us a little bit about that. Can we measure these character traits? It's it's definitely um, uh, more complicated than, than measuring straight IQ, but increasingly um, psychologists are coming up with ways to do that. So in the past, um, psychologists have had ways to measure things like conscientiousness. There are some, mm -hmm. some pretty standard tests that measure that. Self-control right. is something that we can measure. Grit is uh, a pretty new psychological category. Um, so grit as a concept has obviously been one that goes way back in American history and beyond. Um, but as a psychological category, it's something that was come up with just uh, a few years ago by this psych 
a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania named Angela Duckworth. And she she had been studying self-control um, and felt like she wanted to come up with this other predictor of success that wasn't just about being conscientious and always doing the right thing. It was about having self-discipline but in pursuit mm-hmm. of a passion. Uh, and so she invented this category called grit and invented something called the grit test, uh, which you can find on her website at Penn. Uh, it's a simple eight-question test. Um, how likely are you to stick with a task? Uh, or do you give up easily? Um, and what she found is two interesting things. One is that people are pretty honest on this test. They actually uh, give you a pretty good uh, sense of their own grit. Um, and the other is that it is actually quite predictive, that your score mm-hmm. on this simple test um, predicts all kinds of outcomes. Um, and, and grit, as she defines it, is, is perseverance and passion for the long term. Why don't you give us an example of, of how that can be, maybe one of the stories from the book or, or something that you've observed showing that, that grit more than cognitive capacity actually is what leads to some kind of success. Well, I think the place where it probably shows up the most is in, in, in my book anyway, is in um, college persistence. Um, so grit just has to do with, with sticking with something, believing in a, in a long-term goal and not letting any obstacles stand in your way. Um, and for a long time when we've thought in this country in a sort of public policy way about college and increasing opportunities for kids to, to get college degrees, we really focused on college access. Um, and in order right. to get into college, you don't necessarily need a lot of grit because getting through high school, actually, if you just follow the rules and, and do what everyone tells you to do, it's not that hard to get a high school diploma. Um, but then kids get into college. And in college, you need, you need to be more self-motivated. You need to be able to plan better. You need to be able to focus on your goals and, and deal with disappointment better, all of which is very much connected with grit. Um, and so when, they, when, they, when researchers have tried to study why kids are dropping out uh, in the huge numbers that they're dropping out of college right now, um, they track it to those non-cognitive skills. They don't all call it grit, uh, but I think it's very connected to what Angela Duckworth is measuring. She, and she, she's given the grit test to uh, lots of different um, kids, young people in different situations, and one was a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania, and she found that grit um, made it easier for them to persist at college. Um. Right, which makes sense. So there's also a story in the, in, in, in the book, and we're just calling, you know, the crack team here at, uh, at Thinking World Headquarters has just called up the 12-item grit scale. Um, right. And it's, it's questions like, uh, so again, for those of you listening who want to find this app, just go to, just uh, put into your favorite search engine, uh, Angela Duckworth, regular spelling, and grit scale, and you'll find it. But it's questions like, uh, they're, they're self-descriptive questions like many of these psychological instruments. Um, uh, I have overcome setbacks to conquer an initial challenge. My interests change from year to year, which is a which would be you know inversely scored. Um, right. And it's really just this ability to stay with something for a long period of time. And I mean, I actually wrote a little bit about this in a, in a, in a book of mine about the West Point study that showed that the that the best predictor of surviving that initial beast barracks uh, session of West Point isn't yeah. is not. SAT score or a military background or being an athlete, but is this capacity for uh, capacity for, uh, for for grit? But going, let's go to, let's go back to that college point again because I think it's a it's it, it's a really important point, and I think it gets obscured, particularly here in the states, on our public policy discussion. As you said, we talk about access, but tell us about the experience of uh, David Levin and the Chip schools in this regard. 
So, so David Levin is the man who, uh, one of the co-founders of the KIPP schools, um, started them back in the 90s with Michael Feinberg. These are these high-performing um, charter schools. There's now more than 100 of them uh, all across the country. But the first one that, that Dave Levin founded was Kip Academy in the Bronx, um, and it was when he founded it an enormously successful school. The, I, I described the eighth grade class in 1999 as maybe the most famous eighth grade class in the history mm-hmm. of American education, um, mm-hmm. because this was a brand new school. These were low income mm-hmm. kids at the time. No one thought that it was really there was a, a reliable way to teach low income kids uh, to high levels, um, and yet these kids in eighth grade had the highest test scores in the Bronx and the fifth highest in all of uh, New York City. And they got KIPP on the, on the 60 Minutes and on the uh, front page of the New York Times. And then, um, and Dave just sort of assumed, like, okay, they were fine. Like, he'd gotten them these cognitive skills to do well on tests. They were, gonna, they were mostly going on to private and parochial schools. They were going to do just fine. And most of them did do fine through high school. And then they got to college, and uh, Dave started to get reports of how they were doing, and they were starting to drop out. Um, hmm. And eventually only 21% of that uh, initial class has made it through a four-year BA in in six years, which is sort of the standard for for, uh, college completion. Um, And... And Dave, you know, that's pretty good for, for the Bronx. It's higher than, than kids had been getting, but it was way below what uh, Dave Levin wanted them to accomplish. Um, and so that, that, I think, really pushed him to rethink uh, everything about KIPP and, and the kind of education he was giving kids. And, and what he noticed is that the kids who were persisting were not necessarily the kids who had had the highest test scores back in eighth grade. It was more mm-hmm. the ones with this kind of inner strength, with these character strengths, with this grit and persistence. And so that's when he started trying to figure out how yeah. to make that more systematic at KIPP, how to give kids uh, those character strengths in a more organized way. Well, that's really, I mean, in some ways that's the question we're getting, that is how you actually you do how you actually do that. I, 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 and I've got a couple of questions on Twitter that I want to get to here in a moment. Again, folks, we're talking to Paul Tupp, author of How Children Succeed, uh, about the importance of the character, what we, this kind of large collection of character traits rather than cognitive skills as a predictor of success and something that allows children to grow up to lead flourishing, productive lives. If you want to ask Paul a question, it's star two on your phone. We've got a lot of people lined up already. You're going to have, still going to have to wait. Thanks for sticking with me. I want to just add one point here, which I thought was quite fascinating, uh, is uh, here in the States, we've got um, we offer an alternative track for people to get out of high school called a, the, the GED. Uh, tell us about what uh, folks have found on the, that alternative track to high school graduation and its consequences down the road. So uh, I, I've found out about the importance of the GED through this uh, economist at the University of Chicago named James Heckman, who, who Nobel Prize-winning economist exactly became one of the yeah. main characters in my uh, book. And, yeah, and he he ordinary guy. He certainly is. And over the last 10 years or so, he's been very focused on uh, non-cognitive skills and their importance. And, and it was the GED study that first got him into it. So the idea behind the GED is it, it basically is an expression of the cognitive hypothesis. It says that what the, what you're getting mm-hmm. out of high school is uh, information, is, is cognitive ability. And so if you can take a test showing that you have the same cognitive ability as, as a high school graduate, you are a high school graduate, according to the GED program. You can have this piece of paper that will let you get into college or go on and do anything, uh, allegedly, that a high school diploma holder can do. Um, so, uh, 
Heckman decided he wanted to go and find out whether this was true. He wanted to sort of test out this thesis. Uh, and he looked at some huge databases of um, uh, statistics about how, how uh, high school dropouts did, how GED holders did, and how high school graduates did. And he found that part of the premise of the GED was entirely accurate, that GED holders really are just as smart as high school graduates on sort of IQ-based achievement tests. Um, they score exactly the same way. But then when he looked at their trajectory through life, they didn't look anything like high school graduates. In fact, they looked exactly like high school dropouts um, sure, on all these important yeah. measures, not just um, educational attainment, though certainly that, uh, but also um, how likely they were to get arrested as adults, how likely they were to be on welfare, how likely they were to stay married, uh, all of these other important um, uh, life outcomes. And his conclusion was that, that what those high school graduates had that the GED holders didn't have wasn't you know, more information or, or more cognitive skill. It was the non-cognitive skills that are necessary to make it through to graduation day. Uh, just the ability to delay gratification, to stick with a task, uh, to overcome uh, obstacles and problems, and that those things were, were what were getting those kids the high school diplomas, and they also turned out to be incredibly useful in college and further on into life. And, and, and life, in, <laughs> in life exactly. in general. I mean, it really shows you, I mean, you know, it just occurred to me as you were explaining this, just how much we are in the grip of the cognitive hypothesis because we basically call this other collection of stuff about being a human being non-cognitive. <laughs> exactly. Is, you know, it's defined by it's not being cognitive, as if like the co as if the cognitive part is the most important aspect of human beings. It's, it's obviously very, very important. I don't want to dismiss that. And your book doesn't say when you cite the evidence or when you when you look at some of these really terrific stories, which I want to get to in a moment. It doesn't say, oh, this cognitive ability doesn't matter at all. Um, yeah. That's not true. That's not what you're saying in the least. Uh, we've got a whole, we got so many questions coming in here. So just hang tight with me for a second. I, I want to get to a couple of Twitter questions and then we're going to go to the phone. Um, and I've only gotten through like one of my tough questions here, but let's, um, let's go to, uh, uh, we got a question coming up via, via Twitter from, uh, John Zimmer in, in Switzerland. And he says, it's kind of an interesting question. This social background, correlate with grit? That is, can this is John asking, can coming from a more difficult background paradoxically be a good thing with regard to grit? Uh, and so the answer is anecdotally at least yes. Um, I don't think that, that we've, uh, that Angela Duckworth or anyone else has done enough um, study on this to be able to say that for sure. But it's uh -huh, definitely uh -huh. the, 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 Angela Duckworth is working with David Levin and with um, uh, Dominic Randolph, the head of this uh, private school, Riverdale Country School in New York, to try to develop um, a more systematic way of teaching character. And one of the interesting things they're finding is that in the, you know, so they're, they're dealing with two very different school environments. One, um, Kip Infinity Middle School, which is mostly low-income kids, and the other, Riverdale Country School, mostly very affluent kids. Um, mm -hmm. And so in trying to teach these these skills, they're, they're finding, again, anecdotally at least, uh, that the kids at KIPP, just to have gotten where they've gotten in life, often from you know very challenging backgrounds, 
already have a lot of grit. And for, for some of them, uh, the, the point of this character development is just to, to help them recognize that in themselves, uh, that they already have those strengths, yeah. uh, and help them figure out how to, how to you know, direct them more effectively uh, towards important goals like staying in college. Whereas some of the kids um, growing up in affluence, uh, according to their headmaster, Dominic Randolph, they just haven't really been challenged. They haven't had to yeah. experience failure, and as a result, they yeah. haven't had the opportunity to develop um, important character strengths like grit. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting takeaways. I think that's going to be for a lot of your a lot of a lot of your readers who you know just because they're 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 reading you in the New York Times or, or listening to National Public Radio or browsing their independent bookstore, some portion of your readers, some sizable portion of your readers are going to be fairly well-educated upper-middle-class folks. And I think this is in some ways a wake-up call. Um, For sure. That, that a, lot of, a, lot of the, a lot of the way that the life of an upper-middle-class kid is configured these days is insulates them so much that they're not developing some of these capacities. One of the things that I've seen, not, um, you know, not with a lot of kids, but in general, in that kind of social milieu that I find kind of surprising is uh, the lack of curiosity. Um, the, o- the only question that a lot of these kids have is, will this be on the test? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so, and that lack of curiosity, I think, can really hurt them down the road. We've got so many questions, Paul. I'm going to abandon me, and we're going to go to our first uh, listener question. Uh, let's go to Chris in uh, Cleburne, Texas. As always, we have a huge audience in Texas. Uh, Chris, in Cle- is it Cleburne or Claiborne? I'm actually in Denton, Dan. And Denton, all right. Denton is uh, right is, uh, outside uh, the Metroplex here. Right, right outside of the uh, the DFW Metroplex. Chris, uh, you're on with Paul. Tough. What's your question? Well, while I've listened to every episode of Office Hours, this will be the first time I made lunch plans around so I could hear live and participate. Paul, I bought your book last week and I'm halfway through reading it. And on Twitter, I described it as a mashup of Eric Jensen meets Dan Pink. So, ironically, <laughs> today I'm in the midst of allegations. Don't let that deter anybody from pur- actually purchasing the book. <laughs> <laughs> Highly recommend both. Uh, ironically, today I'm in the midst of allocating federal funds to our Title I-funded campuses in our school district. And, Dan, I'm challenging the entire system based a lot on Gary Hamill's work. And I know that and believe that test scores are not what matters now. Uh, at times, the temptation to buy... Uh, the latest program in a new and shiny book uh, box is great. For example, I've been approached by vendors who want me to buy a program that parents can watch from a smartphone that builds academic skills in preschoolers. But I'm not necessarily convinced that parents will watch or use it. And based on your work, Paul, just as in the social animal, turning our kids into academic machines with flashcards and worksheets isn't the answer. So my question for you is, what would you recommend schools do in an effort to reach our parents, especially of poverty, in meaningful ways to develop uh, attachment and attunement and character skills? Okay, great question. So, what, what's, uh, so, so Chris is allocating Title I funds, which is a, a federal program for lower-income schools. And so the question for Paul is, what can parents, um, particularly lower-income, more disadvantaged parents, do to facilitate some of these things? Chris, great question. Thank you. 
Uh, it is a great question, um, and, and so far we don't have perfect answers. Uh, there is not, you know, a great curriculum that we can just take off the shelf and, and teach all of these non-cognitive school skills. It's part of, I think, the challenge um, of this, these new ideas in education. There are, however, I think, especially if we're talking about low-income kids, I think there are a couple of places in the um, childhood life cycle that are particularly fruitful to intervene, and one of them is. Uh, particularly challenging for school systems, but I think uh, are important for us to focus on, which is the first couple of years of life. And so um, I think Chris mentioned uh, attachment, um, and I talk about attachment research in my book. Having a, a close uh, relationship, an attachment, a secure attachment with a parent in the first couple of years of life is incredibly important in a child's development, especially if they're growing up, as a lot of kids uh, growing up in poverty are, around chaos and violence and stress of all kinds. Um, that close attachment relationship can really help uh, insulate them. And there are some interventions that I write about in the book that are proving very effective at helping parents um, do a better job of developing those kinds of relationships with their kids. So. Uh, the way our system is currently constituted, uh, school systems are not in that game. Uh, but I think that if we can find ways in, in high-poverty neighborhoods to include that as part of uh, our thinking about the education and, and development of kids, that would be a big plus. The other place that seems like a good time to intervene is in adolescence. Um, hmm. And uh, I think that the reason that, that adolescence is important is that kids become uh, what this psychologist I write about, Martin Seligman, calls metacognitive at that stage. They can you know, think about themselves in a different way and reflect on themselves. And as we know, if we hang out with teenagers, they really like reflecting on themselves. Uh, they can be a little self-obsessed. Um, but in fact, that is something that, that you can use to your advantage if you're trying to help them get these skills. They can think more about what patterns they have, how they got get into the problems that they're in. And so some of these um, programs that I think are most effective are trying to help uh, redirect those, um, those skills in kids. Yeah, on the point about attachment, I thought one of the things that was interesting was how the advice or, or the, the strategies are, are really built around attachment, and that requires, particularly among social workers and whatnot, in, in some ways to just blot out all this other bad stuff. Um, so if they come into a house and, and, and there's and people are smoking or there's, or it's, a, it's in total disarray. It's not trying to worry about that kind of stuff and just help this young mom who probably didn't have sufficient attachment from her mother or might not have had sufficient attachment from her mother understand what it is to love this child and recognize that that is something that human beings do and focus single-mindedly on that attachment rather than the, all the array of other troubles in that person's life. Yeah, I found that fascinating. So, as you know from the book, I yeah. went along with a home visitor in, on the south right. side of Chicago from this group called Answer Prevention in Chicago. Right, and that's that what was I was exactly what, Answer, yeah. what they were yeah. doing. Yeah, and, and it's uh, you know, and it and it we 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 resist a little bit because we see all this other yeah. bad stuff and want to fix it, and we focus on that. We've got another question going on here. Let's go to um, uh, oh, we're going to go to the mean streets of Northbrook, Illinois, for uh, Wendy. Wendy, uh, you're on the air with Paul Tuff. Mm -hmm. Wendy, are you there? Hi, Paul. Yeah, are you able Paul. to hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Um, so I am wondering if you have familiarity with Montessori schools. Um, the reason being that um, the structure and methodology of a Montessori school leaves children in positions kind of all day long where they have to solve 
life's problems on a smaller scale um, to, to enable them to struggle and be successful. And um, I just wondered if you had any familiarity with it. Um, uh, that's a great question, Wendy. Thank you. So I, I myself haven't reported in Montessori um, schools at all, but I have to say over the last uh, couple of weeks since my book came out, I've heard from <laughs> lots of Montessori graduates and parents saying, this is what we're doing. So um, I, I, I believe them. Uh, I can't vouch for it myself, but I think I think it's a, it sounds like a, a, an important intervention, um, and, and that really I think is the focus of a lot of those schools. Yeah, there are. Right, well, there, I mean, oh, go ahead. Yeah, Wendy. I mean, are you a Montessori? No, no. You go. Parent? You go ahead. No. Uh, what is Dan? Uh, Wendy, are, are are you a Montessori educator? I am a I am a Montessori graduate and a head of school in Northbrook, Illinois. Yes, at a Montessori. Okay, so so why don't why don't you draw some of the uh, connections between what Paul is talking about and what Montessori is doing? Well, I mean, obviously we're in well, not obviously, but we're in really strong agreement with the notion that what children really do need to be practicing as early as possible is how to engage with the world around them in in a myriad ways, um, socially, um, educationally, uh, but. First and foremost, they, they really need the opportunity to try things and fail yeah. and try yeah. them again and fail. And that if, if in, they need opportunities to, to think and choose rather than spending a lot of time doing what they're told because obedience is not so high really on the you know, evolutionary scale for human beings. It's, it's certainly critical for us to be a community together, but we want to get beyond obedience. We want to get to creativity. We want to get to initiative. We want to get to resourcefulness. And kids have to be in an environment in which they have children of different ages and different skills. There has to be a lot of them so that the teacher can't always help, so that they're kind of forced into solving a lot of their own problems. And an environment in which the educator understands that the child really wants to play a more sophisticated role in the in the classroom community and the community at large than just learning two plus two equals four. Uh, right, and I, I mean, to me, as, as I mean, I've spent some time in Montessori, looking at Montessori schools. I've written a tiny little bit about them, and, and to me, what we're, one of the things that really connects, especially to what Paul was talking about earlier, was um, this idea of at the heart of Montessori is really self-direction, uh, and one way to to look at what's happening with I think a lot of students and young people in this in this country is that the kids who are disadvantaged are often sort of adrift and they have they almost have no direction that they're they're at sea. Whereas it, whereas many of the kids the, the kids in Riverdale or Potomac, Maryland or Scarsdale or whatever other uh, wealthy suburb I'm going to disparage here are um, uh, not really self directed but kind of compliant. Um, and I think that Montessori focused so much on self-direction is very consistent with a lot of what, uh, Paul, your reporting has found both on, on the ground and in, uh, in the science. Let's go. We got so, we, we're at, we got, I think we're going to set a record for questions here. Uh, we got, we have way too many people. We got like three hours worth of questions lined up here. So let's go to, uh, I want to go to, um, uh, Raj in uh, Grand Prairie, Grand Prairie, excuse me, Raj, Grand Prairie, Texas. Raj in Grand Prairie, uh, you're on the air with Paul Tuss. Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? Sure thing, Raj. What's your question? Yeah, my question is, um, uh, does your uh, um, guest have any comments on uh, differences among international populations of kids, uh, the character traits and the non-cognitive issues 
or skills uh, that that he talks about are they different uh, are they equally important in other cultures has there been any studies or data or is grit and determination uh, somewhat uh, culture specific as well uh, that's a very interesting question thanks Raj Paul uh, yeah, it's a great question. So I, I haven't seen studies that go cross-culturally on any of these strengths. The, the, the um, character strengths that Kip and Riverdale are focusing on come out of a book called Character Strengths and Virtues by Martin Seligman and Chris Peterson. And they actually identify 24 the, the character strengths that they say are most important. And one of the interesting things about this book, it is a, a gigantic 800-page book, uh, and, and, and what they do in the book is they try to find um, strengths that go beyond time and culture. So they say that these 24 are not at all culturally specific. These are the ones that we've always believed, every society believes uh, are important, and they've tried to you know, do surveys and test them out in different um, countries, and they believe that these 24 um, transcend all of those uh, boundaries. Um, but I haven't seen, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are some interesting, uh, at least subtle differences between how different cultures uh, develop these strengths, uh, but I haven't seen any research on it. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question because, I, you know, you would, you would think that, I mean, if these are essentially innate human capacities, which they seem to be, um, there's going to be some commonality. On the other hand, how, in, how those traits blossom, that have, how, what they look like, if they, grow, they might grow up in the same roots, but what they look like above the surface might be different if you're exactly. raised in Japan, if you're raised in India, if you're raised in uh, uh, Guatemala. Um, my, right. It seems like and, a very and, fruitful area of research for for, for some of these folks. Um, and, and, we're, and, let's just let's uh, we're talking here, folks. Let me remind you here. You're listening to Office Hours. Our guest today is Paul Tuff. He's the author of How Children Succeed: Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. It takes on the belief that it's all about cognitive skills and says that. In, and Paul, looking at his a lot of research and some really great stories from the field says it's really about uh, character, uh, things like optimism and self-control and those sorts of qualities. Let's go. Let's stick with the phones here for a second, and let's go to uh, let's go to Kelly in San Francisco. Kelly in San Francisco, you're on the air with Paul Tuff. Oh, thanks so much, Paul and Dan, um, for having these fantastic, fantastic uh, discussions that um, teach so much of us. Um, I don't want to ask a question that's too formulaic, but I'm just, I'm kind of wondering what advice that you have for those of us who might be, you know, lucky enough to have children in, in schools like Riverdale, et cetera. Um, you know, what what sorts of things would you would would you recommend um, that that would build a little more of the grit and the um, the things that you're teaching us about? Sorry, good good, good question. Thanks, Kelly. Great question, Paul? Kelly. So. So, uh, and the answer I think is a little bit challenging. That, that especially for parents, I think who are so focused on their their kids' uh, success and happiness, and, and you know, like all of us, wanting our kids to do well, it seems like one of the one, one of the big steps that you can take to help your kids develop these strengths is to do less, um, yeah. is, to, is to really be less engaged in their uh, daily lives and their education, and to let them um, 
deal with their own problems a little bit more, uh, pick themselves up when they fall, experience real failure. And I think I think that's a challenge for any parent um, because I think it's deep in our DNA that we want to protect our kids from all adversity. But I think it's especially if you're in a, a you know high achieving competitive high school, uh, the idea that you know uh, it might be okay to let let your child fail every once in a while is I think scary because we are all on this uh, treadmill of, of the cognitive hypothesis. Um, my sense, though, is that when kids uh, do get a little bit more room, both from their uh, parents and from their schools, uh, and they can take some more challenges, take some more risks, some real risks, um, and fail every once in a while, uh, it can be a really positive experience for them. Um, and, and not only because of what they're trying, but because of the experience uh, of learning to handle failure. Yeah, this is, this is an idea that is, that is gurgling out there. Uh, Wendy Mogul has a book called The Blessings of a Skin Knee. Yep, yep. Um, Madeline Levine has a couple of really great books uh, getting at this. But it's, but it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm a father of, I'm a father of three, and it's, it, it is difficult because a lot of times our instincts are to protect in, in that way. And that might not be the best, that might be the best thing in, the, that might feel the best. I guess in an evolutionary way in the short term, but not necessarily be the best in the long term. But but you've got a um, you write a little bit about uh, the fact that you now have a, a young son. How has what you found out in this in your research and reporting affected what you do as a dad? It affected me a lot. So when when uh, so I'm right, my son is three. But and when when my wife and I uh, first had him, I was just at the beginning of doing my reporting on this book, and I think I was still really in the sway of the cognitive hypothesis and believed that you know we needed to get the. Mozart CDs and the Baby Einstein DVDs going in the maternity <laughs> ward, or he wasn't going to get sure. into the college of his oh, choice. Oh, maternity ward! You're, it should be in utero. Oh, that's true. That's true. I yeah, you're way too late, man. You're so late. Um, but but one of the things that this research um, gave me was sort of permission to take it easy a little bit more and relax a little bit more in my parenting, especially in those first couple of years. Um, and, and I really was very influenced by the uh, literature around attachment psychology and the idea that what those early years are absolutely important, uh, but what's most important in them is not the how much information we were able to get into our son's head. It was the relationship that he had with me and with his mother um, and the non-cognitive skills that are developing in those relationships. I think what gets complicated about parenting, and I'm just starting to experience this, and I know lots of other uh, parents have experienced this before me, is that you know we know from the attachment literature that in the first couple of years of life, what kids need is just uh, lots of love and attachment and attunement and someone who you know comes every time uh, you cry. But uh, a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old actually doesn't need you to come every right. time they cry. And in fact, that right. I think can be quite damaging. Um, and yet there's no roadmap of how you switch from one kind of parenting to the other. And as so, as I said, my son's three, and I think I'm just at that transition phase now. And so it comes less naturally to me. Um, the attachment stuff really um, felt, you know, very instinctive for me. But now having to step back and let my son, you know, struggle with a jigsaw puzzle and not tell him where the pieces go and let him, you know, literally fall down when he's trying to learn to ride a bike and not go running to him and, and help him back up. Um, I, I'm pushing myself to try to do those things. And, and what strikes me is that he really 
responds positively to it. You know, I, I don't sure. think I, I think what he wants right now is to prove his independence, um, and I think that's only going to continue to be true. And, and giving him the opportunity to do that, even when all my instincts tell me not to, uh, yeah. is what I'm going to continue to try to do. But you know, but but at some level, I mean, I think human beings, whether they're three-year-old human beings or 53-year-old human beings. That want to grow, and it's very hard to grow if you've got this giant oak tree casting a shade all over you all the time. <laughs> right. um, you, know, you need to kind of be exposed to the sunlight. What do you make of? And we got a couple of questions like this on on Twitter, and I think we had a blog post uh, or a comment on the blog about this as well. Uh, what do you make of things like the um, uh, Tiger Mom? Uh, so I, I mean, I think there is lots about the the Tiger Mom philosophy that makes sense to me this idea of you know that kids can really deal with some adversity they can they can deal with some pushes um they can you know fight through struggles and accomplish something i think what what is potentially detrimental in that kind of parenting is that it it, it there are lots of challenges for those kids um but they're the challenges of the parents you know the parents are creating right. a structure of like <laughs> here are the lessons you're going to take here's when you're going to show right. up here's how you know how many piano pieces you have to you have to master um and and that is really good for learning piano uh, but i don't think it's really good for learning these deeper character strengths that it's i mean w- grit is the uh, as angela duckworth defines it it's uh, perseverance in the pursuit of a passion and a passion has to be your passion not your parents passion uh, precisely. Uh, let's. Uh, I want to ask a few, a few other things here because I want to bring out uh, a few other aspects of the book that I thought were really interesting and, and, and really revealing. I, I think w- one of the things that I like about this book, along with kind of the conceptual breakthroughs that it gives you, is that it's also, in many ways, a story of heroes. Um, you know, a lot of individuals whom most of us have never heard of, out there working on their own, and essentially reaching the conclusion about the weakness of the cognitive hypothesis and finding a better way to help kids, particularly disadvantaged kids. And I guess one of my favorites in the book, maybe the the favorite in the book, if I can have that, is a young pediatrician in San Francisco named Nadine Burke Harris. Uh, Why don't you tell us about her, what she's doing, and why it's important? Sure. So um, Nadine Burke Harris is, uh, she runs her own a pediatric clinic in a low-income neighborhood of San Francisco called Bayview Hunters Point, and I met her a couple of years ago. And, and so she was she was a very useful um, uh, person to me, a very fun person to hang out with, but also a very useful person to me in terms of writing this book for two reasons. One is she helped me understand a lot of that early uh, re, re, a lot of that research about early stress and the mm-hmm. negative effects that stress can have on the developing brain, especially of kids growing up in adversity like the ones that she was trying to help. Um, but also I found her own personal story to be so compelling. So she, she grew up in Palo Alto. She uh, was a really intense do-gooder, wanted to help kids, went to medical school, went to the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, started this clinic at a very young age. Um, and, you know, like lots of Harvard graduates, she thought she had all the answers and all the tools to, to do everything that she needed for the kids she was serving. Um, and and in, in lots of ways, she was. She sort of knew what the inner-city pediatrician's checklist was. She increased their immunizations. Uh, she helped them with nutrition. She gave them the medications they needed. But she felt like there were all of these problems in their lives uh, that 
she couldn't immunize them against the violence and the stress and the trauma that they were surrounded with every day. At one point, she, she described it to me that she felt more like a, a battlefield surgeon than like a primary care pediatrician, just sort of patching these kids up and sending them back into a war zone. And so that, to her great credit, that really pushed her to rethink everything that she was doing. And it, it, it first of all, took her into all this research about stress. Um, she started reading, as I did, things she didn't expect to be reading in neuroendocrinology and right, physiology. Right. Um, and she really came to conclude that this... The, the early, what, what um, some uh, neuroscientists call the toxic stress that the kids yeah. she was serving were experiencing was what was causing them all kinds of pro- problems, certainly health problems down the road, but also uh, school problems, behavior problems, uh, psychological problems, um, and that until she could figure out ways to both try to limit that stress and to compensate for it, ameliorate it in various ways, she wasn't really going to be able to serve her kids uh, as well as she wanted to. So she's starting something now in San Francisco called the Center for Youth Wellness uh, that's supposed to open its doors next spring. Um, And it is this much uh, more ambitious version of her clinic that um, not only provides or will not only provide pediatric services, but also uh, mental health services, social services. It's going to be connected with um, lots of different city agencies uh, and be sort of a a one-stop shopping for uh, parents of disadvantaged kids in this neighborhood. And I think what's also interesting about her work is, is the way it sort of reframed the problem. I mean, as I look at that, it, it, it essentially what, what she's saying is that the amount of stress in these kids' lives operates as a toxin, and not, not even meta, not even totally metaphorically, but oh, no. it operates as a toxin that actually affects the physiology of their brain. Yeah. Um, and I think what's interesting about that, as we frame the problem that way, is it, it becomes akin to these kids, say, having a I don't know, if there was a toxic waste dump next to their, their house or their apartment building, and, and we would find that intolerable. We would say we have laws and regulations to protect that, to protect these kids from that kind of, these kinds of toxins. And this is a different kind of toxin. I think in some ways reframing that problem might be a way to do something, um, you know, if we follow the lead of, of, uh, of her, we might be able to do something um, and make it less about, I guess where I'm going here is that, we sometimes, when we, when we raise questions of character, we tend to think of this as character weaknesses. And what she's doing is saying, this is a public health problem here. This isn't yep. about one person being strong or one person being weak. This is akin to basically air pollution or having something terrible in your environment that's affecting you at the physiological level. Well, what's so interesting about the way she looked at um, the situation, there was this one day where we were driving around together the, the housing projects of Bayview-Hunters Point, which like a lot of housing projects, are not great and had a lot of people in them with lots of social uh, problems of various kinds, economic problems, certainly. Um, but what she, as she was sort of watching these different families and different kids, she, she, it was almost like she could see the chemical, the neurochemical, uh, and, mm. and like the cortisol going running through their uh, veins yeah. and their brains. Um, and and she said something that really stuck with me, which is that, you know, when we look at kids growing up in this neighborhood, we just think, like, we can't figure out what the problem is. It just seems so complex. But one way to look at it is on the molecular level. And and once you mm. look at that, you know, what's really going on in these kids' lives is just the, you know, the firing of a neuron or the folding of a protein. And the exciting thing about that is that, you know, that's something we can actually deal with, you know. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of problem that we can figure out a solution for, whereas, you know, just 
capital P poverty um, seems too daunting to try to solve. Precisely, precisely. Um, that's actually interesting because that really connects to that other thing about you know, go into that apartment building and teach these young mothers about attachment and don't worry yeah. about all the other bad stuff that's going on there. Just focus on what we can change, what we can do, and not throw up our hands at the enormity of it all. Let's go back to the phones. Uh, I actually, my, I'm not sure I have a first, the first name right here, but uh, it's somebody calling in from Evanston, Illinois, home of Northwestern University. Evanston, you're on the air. Evanston. Go, you Northwestern. Fight for victory. All right, I guess Evanston isn't there. Let's go to uh, let's go to Allen in Austin, Texas. Allen in Austin, you're on the air with Paul Tuff. Uh, hi, this is Alan hey. Claymar in Austin. Hey, Alan. So you touched a little bit about um, um, someone had asked about a, a or you had mentioned a, a, there's no curriculum uh, that will help develop these these skills, and and you touched more on on the uh, growing up in the early years, but I, I am interested in Okay, so you've got some kids in high school, and, and what can you do, or what, what type, if you can even think of one class, that would address uh, uh, encouraging and developing these skills? Sure. So, okay. so there, there are lots of things that different schools are, are trying to figure this out. When I say there's no curriculum, I don't mean that no one's trying to figure out a curriculum or there aren't some good um, uh, experiments in that direction. I, I just don't think there's yet a perfect one that we can take off the shelf. Um, so, for instance, like Kip and Riverdale have developed this character report card, uh, and they are mm-hmm. – um, trying different ways of talking about the uh, character strengths that they're trying to emphasize in class, something that David Levin calls dual purpose instruction, so that in every math and English and history class you're talking about curiosity yeah. and grit. Um, the one the one curriculum that I feel like is, is closest to being an off-the-shelf curriculum for uh, these character strengths is, is uh, this program called One Goal in Chicago um, that is a three-year program in junior and senior year of high school and freshman year of college that tries to work with low-income kids who um, don't have a history of college going in their families to try to develop the character strengths that they need, not just to get to college, but to persist through college. Um, and I spent, a, there's a whole chapter in the book about one goal. I spent um, uh, a couple of years following some kids through that program. Um, and it feels to me like the most uh, immediately replicable version of uh, a, a character education program, even though they don't really use the word character all that much. Yeah, it's interesting. We got a couple of questions on Twitter uh, that are that are at least adjacent um, uh, adjacent to this, and I'm scrolling through. So, so we have. Um, let me just try to connect these dots. Here. So, Frank in in, in Richmond asked, uh, "What about organizations like? Uh, what role do the organizations like the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts play in building character?" And then we've also got a fellow in what's his name, Mark. Mark in Houston is saying, uh, "The people who help me instill grit." in school were coaches uh, and wanted to know your thoughts on that. So what if, what if we sort of take it out of a particular curriculum and talk about it in other ways that kids learn stuff? Uh, sure. One man at scouting uh, sports and other things. Are those character builders? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and so one of, the, one of the characters that I've read about at length in the book is a chess coach, um, a chess oh, coach. Oh, right, and, yeah. And uh, I think it's no coincidence that she is particularly good at developing character in her students. Um, I mean, she, I think she also has, happens to be a very gifted teacher. But I think there is something about the, the kind of coaching or training relationship that is especially good at uh, developing character. I think partly because it is a close relationship. And while it's easy to mm. you know, teach cognitive skills by being one person sort of talking to a whole room full of kids, 
it's a lot harder to develop non-cognitive skills that, that way. A lot, a lot of times yeah. they are developed in relationships. And there's something about, um, you know, whether it's a music teacher or a chess teacher or a, a sports coach or, you know, a Boy Scout troop leader, it's having somebody working with you um, much more closely, much more one-on-one to figure out how to get better at very specific things. Not only do you get better at those things, I think for a lot of people you're also developing character strengths. Yeah, I wonder if part of it also is is that uh, kids don't choose, at least in most cases, don't choose whether they go to school or not, but they do choose, hey, I want to become a Girl Scout, or they do choose, hey, I want to play baseball, or hey, I want to play the cello. And yeah. so in those kinds of relationships, uh, the kids at least have had some kind of sovereignty to pick what they want to do. So they've already demonstrated some interest in it. Yeah, um, I think that, and that makes a lot of sense. That, I, 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 no, uh, Paul, I want to, we've got a couple, we only have a few minutes left, but there couple more things that I want to get to. I think one of the things interesting um, is is your own uh, educational background. And, mm-hmm. and you made a decision uh, as, a, as a younger man to actually drop out of college. Um, tell us about that decision and, and what um, does what you learned in writing this book affect your understanding of that? Um, yes, my dark, my dark secret. Um, so, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> so your dark, so I... Paul, your dark secret is that you're, you're Canadian. All right. No, that's all, uh, there's a whole slew of yeah. dark secrets that come out in this book. Yeah. Um, so the but but my dropout secret. So I um, yeah. So I went to to a high achieving um, high school uh, where you know it was very competitive in a similar way to Riverdale, um, and then went on to Columbia University uh, and dropped out after a few months. Um, and so I've kind of uh, had that in my in my brain for the last uh, 25 years or so. Um, but this. Uh, but I hadn't quite known how to process it, and doing this reporting gave me a couple of new ways to think about it. So one was a little bit harder on myself, um, which was that you know a lot of this research says that college persistence is all about non-cognitive skills, and the kids who make it through college are the ones with grit and persistence and perseverance, and I didn't. <laughs> so and and I think there's there's some truth to that uh, interpretation that I think I was lacking in some of those non-cognitive skills at that point in my life. But then uh, what Dominic Randolph of, of uh, Riverdale, how, the way he talked about failure and challenge actually gave me a more um, uh, generous way of thinking about my own um, dropping out, which is uh, when I got to college, I think that I you know, had been like lots of kids today who go to do high-achieving high schools. I'd really been on this treadmill, you know, and it was very yeah. much – my life was very much about self-discipline. Uh, I was really good at getting my homework done and, you know, getting the right grades and doing everything exactly when I was supposed to do it. And I got to college and, and felt like this is more of the same, you know, um, mm. and, and I wasn't really experiencing any real challenges in my life. And I think I was really thirsting for that the way that a lot of mm. kids are. And I didn't know how to get it, and so I came up with this pretty strange idea, which was I was going to drop out of college. I bought a, uh, a touring bicycle and a tent um, and took a uh, bicycle trip, a camping trip from um, uh, Atlanta to Halifax. Um, and it was a strange thing to do. I'd never taken a long bike trip by myself before. Um, and at the time, I just thought, oh, this will be a fun trip. <laughs> but I think looking back, you know, it's a strange thing for an 18-year-old to do. And looking back, I think what I wanted was some challenge, you know, to do something that I didn't know whether I could do, um, where there was lots of 
possibility for failure. Um, and I did fail on all sorts of ways along the way. I you know, had lots of flat tires and wrong turns and problems, but I made it to Halifax. Uh, and I think that that experience, um, you know, it might not have taught me the same kind of things that I would have learned in another semester at Columbia, but I think it gave me the character strength um, and just the belief in myself, the um, self-confidence that helped me in lots of ways uh, going on into the future. Did you contemplate going back after that trip? I did. I went back, back again, and then I and and then I dropped out again. <laughs> so I think I was destined to be a dropout. Um, but I but when I dropped out the second time, I actually went to be um, an intern at Harper's Magazine, a slightly more right. um, career focused choice than taking a long bike trip. Um, and and then when I finished that internship, I had this decision to make about whether to go back to school. I had one more year to go, um, or to try to pursue a, a career in journalism. Um, and and I decided to try to hang in there and and try to make it in journalism. Um, and and I think that. I think that was the right choice in the end, uh, and I think that the reason that I thought, like, maybe I can do this on my own uh, without, you know, without a credential, uh, was because of that bicycle trip. You know, that I had proved something to myself. Yeah. Well, uh, Paul Tuff, we're glad that you stuck with journalism as a career and and didn't become a bicycle tour guide on the Eastern <laughs> Seaboard. Um, uh, we've been talking here on Office Hours to Paul Tuff. He's the author of How Children Succeed. Uh, just out in the last week already has climbed the bestseller list. Uh, the subtitle of the book is Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, that's uh, it for Office Hours, everyone. I want to thank you for listening in, tuning in, listening to this program. Uh, the program, of course, as always, will be available for download for free in a few days at uh, danpink.com, as well as on iTunes. Uh, to learn more about uh, Paul Tuff, and again, this terrific book, How Children Succeed, go to paultuff.com or follow him on Twitter, at Paul Tuff, P-A-U-L-T-O-U-G-H, at Paul Tuff. Uh, join us next month on Office Hours when our guest will be Gretchen Rubin, author of The Happiness Project and the new book, Happier at Home, uh, we're thinking about calling, changing the, this episode from Office Hours to Happy Hour. Um, and we've also got some awesome guests, really, just terrific guests lined up for later in the fall uh, and beyond. Until then, for uh, producer Joseph Hinson in Lynchburg, Virginia, director Jessica Lerner here at World Headquarters, I'm Daniel Pink. Uh, if you missed an episode, previous episode of Office Hours, you should be ashamed of yourself. But you can listen to previous episodes on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for taking our or office hours.